Happy versus Flourishing, episode two. This is the podcast where we explore the difference between happiness and flourishing. And whereas happiness is a kind of fleeting feeling, you can have a flourishing life where you're content most of the time, where there's very few people are happy most of the time, not genuinely anyway. So that's the kind of the theme of the show And in most of the episodes, we are going to sort of explore that. This particular episode, not so much. It's a guy with a guy called Barnaby Winter, who's a bit of a marketing genius. And we go a lot more into the business side of things than I think we're probably going to do in most of the upcoming episodes. But as I said, Barnaby is a a marketing genius. He's um, got an impressive track record, as we're going to hear once the episode starts. And so we'll hear a lot more about that in just a few minutes. If you do like this episode, please do share it with anyone who would get some value from it. Why not subscribe to this new podcast and leave a review? Let us know what you think about it. That really helps to for more people to get to know about the podcast. But right now it is time for this week's episode. Welcome to Happy Versus Flourishing. And my guest today on the first actual episode with a guest is Barnaby Winter. How are you, Barnaby? I'm very well, Tony. I'm very well. Thank you very much for asking. Well, you know, I've been meaning to invite you for quite a while. When I was doing the previous podcast, Exceeding Expectations, I kept thinking I need to invite Barnaby. I need to invite Barnaby. And for various reasons, I never got around to it. And then the other day I was thinking, well, why haven't I invited Barnaby yet? So here you are. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm so pleased that it's taken only 100 episodes for you to invite me. <laughs> and for, for those people listening who have no idea who you are, do you want to tell them a little bit about your, you know, your amazing history? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a, uh, I suppose, classed as a serial marketer, um, but I did psychology as a degree at university way back in the early 80s and settled on going into advertising as a career um, and psychology doesn't naturally lead you into that. So I went and did a postgraduate diploma in advertising and then I got a little bit bored of that. So I also did a postgraduate diploma in marketing as well and ended up in a small uh, agency in Farringdon, where I launched the Fiat Decato, the Fiat Fiorino, Weber Carburettors, RJ Hall car leasing, worked on Saab Sky New Trucks account. So I took on my first mentor then, as I've been in business maybe about eight months, and said to him, you know, how do I plan my career? And he said, let's have a look at your CV. And he, he said, oh, you have a great CV if you want to work in the automotive advertising world. And I said, oh, okay, it's the second largest purchase anybody will ever make. You'll always have a career in automotive advertising. I said, oh, okay, that sounds really good. Yeah, I, I, that sounds exciting. What else is there? Mm-hmm. He said, well, the other option you can do is you can become what's called a generalist. Um, so you work across lots and lots of different types of clients and therefore you can advise people on business and, and be more robust. And I said, oh, that sounds exciting too. He said, I said, well, which one should I do? And he said, well, he said, am I right in saying that you own a Vespa scooter and a VW Beetle Cabriolet? And I said, yes, that's correct. Yes. And he said, hmm. He said, to be honest, Barnaby, you are not a motorhead. Um, you won't survive <laughs> in the world of Formula One and fast cars and supercars. I said, okay. So I settled on becoming uh, a, a specialist generalist, as they're now called. And as a result, after 18 months in my first agency, I moved to an agency called Ogilvy & Mather, which is one of the world's largest advertising agencies, 
oddly enough, to work on the Ford account to relaunch the Ford Sierra, uh, launch the Ford Granada. And whilst I was there over a six-year period, I managed to get myself off Ford. And I launched Argos. Uh, I launched uh, Radion washing detergent. And before I left uh, Ogilvy's, uh, I think called Lipton Ice Ice Tea Worldwide. So I had a great, great time there. Probably my favourite agency of all. But they moved across to Canary Wharf when it was practically empty. And so I didn't really like it over there, having been working over in, in uh, Brettenham House on, on, on Waterloo Bridge. So I moved back to Soho, where I launched Eurostar, uh, Boots Opticians, Red Stripe Lager. And, and my career is progressing fairly rapidly at this point. So I, again, three years again, uh, three years later, I got headhunted into another agency to launch Toshiba Home Cinema, work on the Sun Express, I think called First Telecom. So you can start to see that, and they're just the sort of headline accounts. There were lots of other little accounts mm. in between. So they, they're all mm. they're quite a wide portfolio. And then I got um, headhunted um, to join an agency in Clerkenwell to launch a thing called E-Trade. And the reason for that was I'd, I'd kind of discovered the internet in 1987. That's uh, two years before HTML was invented, uh, Tim Berners-Lee. And uh, I'd always worked on the kind of webby side of, of, of brand building. And so I ended up there in 1999, becoming then the youngest managing director of a top 200 advertising agency. So all very exciting, a bit, bit of a, a, a stellar career. And I bought that company in 2001, uh, in June of that year. And some eight, nine weeks later, people flew airplanes into buildings in New York and really challenged world order for me. Um, and as a result, I had uh, 30 staff. We, we pulled together and decided we would come up with a new formula for marketing for clients. And we set in early 2002 a target of six months to relaunch the agency with this new formula for marketing success based on a methodology called the brand bucket. And rather disconcertingly, that project took seven years and so we'd completed that in 2009, uh, just as a new recession was taking a hold. And one of the outcomes of that was we, we realised that we didn't, didn't need a big fancy building in central London with six floors and studios and meeting rooms and libraries and all that sort of thing. Because I'd moved my business from a PAYE business to a, a freelancer only business. So I had the two employees as, as people retired or left or moved, changed jobs, we replaced them with freelancers. So we had 30 freelancers working in the building plus three employees. And I decided to, to shut the building down, close that particular company. And I pushed everything to the cloud, took a year. And today I sit here talking to you from a kind of a control center where I have a huge freelance community all working on my, my client work. And what I do now is I provide uh, big corporates with the marketing strategy for their formula for marketing success. And then I help them implement that through various resources. And in 2007, I became a speaker. In 2009, I became a professional speaker um, and just have moved on from that. So I'm really enjoying my career right now. Hmm. Well, and there's so much to dig into in what you just said. I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind is what is, what, what is marketing? So marketing is the discipline of creating every experience that affects the relationship between a product or service and its buyer. So it's, it's the discipline of doing that. So you're, 
the role of marketing has fundamentally changed. Where where I came into the industry, it was predominantly led by advertising. Everything else was kind of a poor relation. Whereas now, actually, the way a business systems and processes functions should now be influenced by marketing thinking because actually marketing is, a, is, is the discipline of creating these, these, these commercial relationships between what you are selling and the people who are buying those things. And how do you, I mean, because marketing's changed quite a bit over the last what, 10, 20 years. How do you think it might change over the next few years? Oh, so, so, well, okay, so let's, let's, Let's talk about how it has changed, and then let's let's reflect on how that might go forward. So, what what is what is what we we saw from our research when we were when we were putting the formula for marketing success is there was a there was a, a real kicker in in uh, in the way marketing works. So, mar- if we start with marketing one this is when we were agricultural as a community. We would make uh, grow things, and we would rear. Uh, Livestock, and we take that to the local market, and we stand around and we shout at people, and people would come and they buy buy our goods. That was kind of marketing one one point oh. It was it was very word that. Marketing two point was then really about um, uh, creating this idea that you 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 could build factories, the, the industrial revolution, and start and selling the things you were making to other people. Uh, and then what that led to was kind of a broadcast mindset, where essentially we got to a point where people were creating things like USPs, uh, unique selling points. We found that those died in 1995. There has not really been any such thing as a USP since 1995. And the reason for that was because of the internet. And what the internet did is it empowered us as buyers to get far more information far more quickly from the comfort of our own uh, armchairs using browsers and various other things which you know didn't really take a hold until 98 when Google came along, although there was AltaVista and, and all these, and AOL and all these other browsers prior to that. But um, so that led to kind of marketing 3.0 where we started to see the buyer taking control. We're in kind of marketing 4.0 now where actually the brand owner has very little say or sway over decisions that people are making in, in the way that they did originally um, simply because what happened was people go online now. So 88% of all buying decisions start online. And therefore, by the time people contact you for the very first time, they're more likely to buy from you than they're not They're not when they contact you. And mm. that, that's backed by research. Um, 57%, then 57% more likely to buy from you than not buy from you when they contact you for the very first time. So that's really changed marketing. We're talking about that as marketing 4.0. So in, essentially what's happened is... Marketing has become an inbound strategy, not an outbound strategy. So we move from shouting at people and broadcasting USPs to now people finding out about us and buying from us. That's where we are right now. Where that's going now, of course, is because technology underpins the relationships. People, the brand owners have realized that they've lost control. So what they're doing now is they're digging into the data. So we've got this thing called machine learning going on at the moment. And machine learning is not AI. A lot of people confuse AI. A lot of people are using the phrase AI. But in fact, where we're at at the moment is we're in machine learning mode. And the difference between machine learning and AI 
uh, is that AI uses machine learning to present information, but when it presents information, it is not discernible to you or I that it's not a human being. That's what characterizes AI. That's the definition of AI, that you can't tell it's not a human being doing it. And there are very, very few examples of that right now, of, of you communicating with a system where it feels very, very human, but there's no humans involved. So I think where marketing is going to go is this AI thing is going to start to come in. And you and I will not know whether we are talking to a human being or not talking to a human being. And as a result, the data feed that will come from our lives will feed the AI, and the AI will talk to us in such a way as we think we are making uh, decisions. Uh, but in reality, we're being marketed at based on what we're doing from a, from a data set point of view. So, for example, um, one day you're, there will be a delivery at your door, and it will be all of the food to go into your fridge because your fridge will have communicated with, with the retailer that you've chosen and, and it would have, the shelves would have weighed the fact that uh, you've run out of tomatoes and cucumber and you need some more marmalade and the butter's getting low and bread bin is empty and all of that sort of thing. And effectively, it will, it will simply send an order down the line and send it to you. And therefore, marketing will have to have changed then because how would you select the type of, of, of foodstuffs, brands, whatever, um, that you would want, want to eat in preference? That's all going to be data-led, in my opinion. And so uh, I, I would imagine that in 20 to 30 years' time, marketing will look fundamentally different um, because it will, mm. it will, we will be looking at a much more emotional engagement much more inbound, much more collaborative using the data that we create. So what, what sort of changes will the average businessman need to start making to take advantage of that? So I think there is a real key strategic thing that business owners have to do, and they have to understand that brand is not your logo, it's not your look and feel, it's not a fancy website, it's not something It's not something that designers create for you. Actually, what a brand is, is a, uh, a, a relationship that people value more than the relationship they have with the money in their pocket. And if you can convey that relationship, then people will give you the money in their pocket in exchange for that relationship because it will seem worth more than the, the relationship they have with their money. And as a result, what we're going to, what businesses have to realize now is that in fact they are, they have built a machine that commercializes relationships. So therefore, where back in the industrial revolution, people with the money built machines, factories, systems. And when we moved to a service economy in the 50s here in the UK, it became a service thing. What most business owners do is they build systems and processes around making their lives easier so they can scale, so they can employ more people, so they can get more goods and services out of the door. The reality is that we now have to apply marketing thinking to those systems and processes and design them for the buyers rather than for the business owners. So what business owners have to do right now is they have to go through literally line by line, almost in a coded way, everything in their business system and process and orientate it towards the buyer rather than towards the staff or towards themselves. And that's a huge challenge. I, I sit with many 
business leaders. And they really struggle with the idea of actually they're in business for their buyers uh, and that what they should mm. be creating as a system. And so what they're doing is commercializing relationships with their buyers. So if you start with buyers, and actually if you, Tony, if you look at all the brands that have sort of come from nowhere in the last 10 years, Airbnb, Just Eat, Alibaba, Zappos, even things like Amazon, Google, uh, eBay. Um, if you look at those, uh, you will find that they are systems that have been built and designed around the buyer. And they are, hmm. and, and the, the, yes, it's easy to say, oh, well, they're all online and I'm not an online business. But actually, the reality is that's not the key differentiator. The key differentiator is none of the brands that I've just mentioned produce any products or services. They use other people's stuff. So if hmm. you're a product producer or a service producer, you run the real risk of, of becoming commodity and you're having to go through uh, the same sort of distribution channels as, as product producers used to do when, when the, the Tesco's and the Sainsbury's and, and the Asda's arrived because they became the gatekeepers of the relationship between the, the buyers and, and, and the brands. Um, so I think for business owners have to really sit down now and look at every element of their systems and process and say, how do we make that marketing lead? Hmm. Some, something occurred to me when you were speaking there, and I, I seem to remember, and I could be wrong, but hearing you speak a year or two ago, and I think you had a different take on the no like trust phrase that people often talk about. Yes, very much so. I, I, it's, 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 uh, it's nonsense, actually, um, uh, because the order is, in the, is, is wrong. Um, you, mm. you are, we only buy from people we like. Um, mm. And actually, from our research, we found an extra dimension to that, which is not only do we buy from people we like, but we buy from people who are like us because there's so much choice. Mm. And so there is no way that people will invest their life energy or their, their time and their money in getting to know you and then decide whether they like you or not. It's absolutely the wrong way around. So the, the order should be like, no, trust. So in other words, what happens is I, I, I hear your story. I kind of like the cut of your jib. I go, actually, do you know what? Tell me more about what you do because I think I could use what you're doing. And then what you do is you then, you, 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 having engaged emotionally, then engage rationally. And the trouble with no like trust is it's rational, emotional leads to trust. That's the wrong order. It is absolutely emotional, rational, and then trust emerges from that. And it's really important to understand that. And that's why no like trust is the wrong around. It should be like no trust. Mm. What, um, I mean, there's, there's so many avenues I want to explore. I'm just trying to think where, where, what would this, how important in your life are habits? Okay, so I, I, I'm going to throw that back to you, Tony, if that's okay. What do you mean by a habit? So what do you think, um, before we, well, you didn't actually talk about, you know, we were talking about artificial intelligence and machine yeah. learning and so on. And, and something that came into my head was algorithms and, yeah. and, and the, the connection between algorithms and habits, which is essentially yeah. you just, to stop yourself from having to make decisions regularly, you just habitualize certain things. So it could be 
Like after I wake up, I'm going to do, I'm going to go for a run. And after I go for the run, then I'm going to have breakfast. And after breakfast, then I'm going to do this. Uh, you know, so people in, uh, you know, insert different habits into their lives to save making decisions every day. And I just wonder if you have sort of habits that you do consistently every day or it's wonder what habits means to you yeah okay so so um i'm going to interpret what your your question if that's okay you see for me for me yeah, a yeah. habit is a is a is a a subconscious piece of behavior mm-hmm. um, and whereas i think you're asking me how important is routine in my life uh routine which is which are behaviours which I repeat regularly are are critical um, to to purpose, and I think purpose is about understanding where you want to go, uh, understanding where you are, and then creating a set of routines that help you get from a, from A to B. And mm-hmm. I don't think I don't see that as a habit. A habit to me is is something where it's because it's subconscious. I have less control over it. Uh, and therefore, mm-hmm. whereas I, and I, I think being in business is effectively what you're creating as a set of routines that you use, test and fail mm-hmm. on, and when they work, you you kind of lock and load them and put them into your into your business machine because you know that every time you do a B results, and every time you do B C results, and so on. So I, I'm mm-hmm. I am. I suppose psychologically I will be classed as anal when it comes to routine. So I have some very mm. specific things that I absolutely do all of the time from a business point of view. I I put my car keys in the same place um, and the moment I don't put them in the same place, my whole world collapses simultaneously. So there's an inherent danger in that. Um, Mm-hmm. Whereas habits for me, I don't, I don't, I don't see those as habits. I just see those as a routine because what it allows me to do, as you write, is to create a lifetime algorithm where I can mm-hmm. not think about as much as I possibly can, so that I keep momentum. And in fact, that that comes from a when I was at Ogilvy, they 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 identified that I was very good at being sent on courses for which they paid a lot of money for me to go on, but then I would teach everybody else in the organisation. So I would run mm. workshops following the courses uh, for people. And one of the courses we did was a personal efficiency program, PEP it was called. And it was a three-day mm. three program on, on, on how you work very efficiently. And they had at their the heart of their, their philosophy was a do-it-now principle. Uh, and what you had to do is you had to activate absolutely everything in your life in such a way as it automatically fed back to where you were so you didn't have to think about it so you could run a clear desk policy but everything was active so you'd have bring forward files and files and notes and systems which then came back and said don't forget you've got to buy flowers from mum write that contact report issue that invoice collect the payment all that sort of thing and it they they helped me understand how you build a system where that's all working so it's kind of like a, a machine learning principle and there is an algorithm to the way it works but I, I don't see those as habits i see those as as, as routines procedures mm-hmm. systems and processes right what um do you see yourself as being unconventional in any way in your life <laughs> um 
it's a, it's a really interesting question, Tony, because I clearly I cannot answer that question because mm. my life is my own convention. Um, I think if you were asked, if you were to ask other people, including my children, I think they would absolutely mm. affirm that I am deeply unconventional. <laughs> um, I per- I think I'm normal, uh, and and that my normality right. is, is is quite conventional. So 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 because it's who and what I am, and I'm, I, I'm you know. As is, as is the title of, of this podcast, I'm, I'm very happy being who I am. But uh, I think probably in a, I don't know if there was a, 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 a sort of a, a, a normality or a, 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 you know, the set, I'm not probably not sitting in the centre of the bell curve of society. No, I'm probably more on the edges. Well, and what part of the reason why I ask that? Because I get the impression that you're you don't feel that you have to do what everyone else is doing and you just, you, you're quite happy just doing your own thing if it brings you results. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I have a very, I, I, I do, I think more than many that I know have a very clear sense of self. Um, mm. And, and so therefore what that, that facilitates is resilience. It facilitates uh, confidence um, which which can be perceived as arrogance at times, but but is not meant to be. It's just just you know I'm I'm very comfortable in my own skin, um, and mm. I think the more comfortable you are, the less you worry about what other people think, and therefore you end up doing more what you want to do. So I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, mm. I mean you've got I mean, so one of the things about this podcast again is about the idea behind it is to give each episode is to give people small little ideas of how they can you know, make small changes in your life. And you, you sort of referred to that before we started speaking about every day you're looking to improve something every day. Yeah. Um, what, so what do, you, what do you mean by what kind of things are you looking to improve in your life? So, so I, I'm, I'm completely taken by, by you know, the, the concept of what makes the boat go faster. So uh, I think uh, Redgrave and Pinson, uh, I think it might have been Redgrave was asked, you know, what, how did he win four gold medals in rowing? It's one of the most challenging um, sports. And he said, mm-hmm. it's very simple. He said, that, you know, literally after we won the first gold medal, we, we, we started on day, we had a break and then we sat down and then we said, okay, let's just spend time um, working out one thing per day that make, will make the boat go faster. We'll then give that a go. If it works, we'll, we'll keep it. And if it doesn't work, we'll, we'll move on to the next thing. And he said, and then four years later, we ended up being the fastest boat because we've consistently done mm. what makes the boat go faster. And mm. I was really taken by that. So what I do is I sit and I look at the kind of business I want to run. I, want, I look mm. at the kind of life I want to lead. And I go, okay, how do I, you know, if I want to spend more time not working, then I have to find ways of achieving the same work goal, but by saving five minutes. And, you know, if you think about it, Tony, if you, if you, if you find something that saves you three minutes a day for 10 days in a row, you've just found yourself half an hour a day. You know? Yeah. And, so my mind is very much at that level. I think, well, okay, how can I? So you know, sh- stupid things like, uh, I, you know, 
one of the things I've done during during the last few months is is I've reordered the way my files are filed on my computer, so that mm. I've, I've started to rank files that I access more often ahead of files that I don't access at all, rather than treating them all as the same. And the outcome of that yeah. is it probably saves me two or three minutes a day. Yeah. So there you go. That's, that's so I, I've found one, one of the one of the things that the personal efficiency program said is that every time if you if you have things on your desk, every time your attention is taken away from your desk and you come back, you spend scientifically in the region of two to three seconds reading everything on your desk automatically. You just do it as a mental thing. So if you've got if you're the kind of person that has lots of yellow stickies and stuff and reminders and all that sort of thing. Or, or just documents lying about and bits and pieces. What happens is you scan your desk every time you so you take a phone call and you put the phone down, you scan your desk. Then you get up, go to the loo, and you come back and scan your desk. You go and get a cup of coffee, you come back and scan your desk. And, it, and one of the things they demonstrate is you can literally find 20 to 30 minutes in a day just by having a clear desk policy. Now, once you start mm. to do that, you go, go, okay, but if I take it off my desk, I won't remember to do it, and then they teach you how to do it. So this, this idea is literally how does a spreadsheet work? What data do I need? What data have I been a slave to that makes no difference? What data do I really need? What's my, my, what are my, uh, uh, what's my GVA, my gross value added? So I'm, what I'm looking for all the time is how do I maximize the profitability of every hour I spend on my business. And then because I've set a figure of what I want to earn every year, I then find that I work less and less and less. So when, when, when I, 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 I keep timesheets, for example, and I, I uh, analyze my timesheets every week to make sure that I'm spending the right amount of time on the right things every week. And if I found I've gone slightly out of mm. balance, the following week I actively redress that balance. So there's always this balance mm. going on between... Uh, my, the three three drivers of the business, and um, uh, and and making my my business boat go faster, and therefore my life go faster because it's my life. Business business. I don't believe in work life balance. I think that's complete nonsense. You just get one life. You can spend some time working in it. You can spend some time playing in it. And sometimes sleeping in it. You know, whatever. You know, that's your life. Ooh. Let's explore that. I mean, in, in that, in what you just said, one of the things you mentioned was about to spend more time not working. So what sort of things do you, are you looking always to reduce your hours because you want to be just doing things that help you enjoy life more? Uh, no. So I absolutely love my life and I absolutely love my work. And actually, if you told me I had to work 23 hours a day and I get one hour to sleep and eat, I'd be quite happy with that because it's, 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 right. you know, I've become my work. Of course I have. So, so that, that isn't, that isn't part of the objective. Actually, um, I, I, so I'm, I'm an only child and I'm the son of an only child. So actually I'm very, very insular in, in my mind, in, in my mindset. So if, hmm. actually, if nobody spoke to me for a month, I probably wouldn't worry too much. And there's an inherent danger yeah. in that because there's an inherent danger in that. Um, so, you know, I've been married a long time. I've got three beautiful daughters who, who start to generate their own lives, as I know you do. And, and, and um, um, so I, I have to kind of make time for them in the way that I have to make time for everything. So I have to actively 
consciously have systems and processes that get me away from from my work, which I really enjoy. But if I can be more efficient, generate the right profits, then I, I get more time to read, I get more time to write, I get more time to research. And what you know, and the more more I read, write, research, the more profit I make. Because when I then go back into the the, the client facing situations, I'm I'm more of a subject matter expert than I was before, and so they they value me more, so they pay me more. So it, there's this really weird cycle going on that the the less the less I work, the more I earn. <laughs> Because I'm becoming more valuable as a as a person, because I'm spending more time with my family. My my home is you know the DIY list isn't isn't monstrous. It's much shorter. It's you know I get out. I go meet people well, under normal circumstances. You would, but but not so much at the moment. But um, and and you just share in life. You go to art galleries. You go to museums. You go to Disney. You know, just all of these things. And, and, and so your life becomes enriched by other people's mm. energy. Man. Do you think you're good at um, relaxing? Uh, so I am brilliant at sleeping. So I, right. I, I, once I climb into bed, I'm asleep within 20 to 30 seconds. And then all, all being well, I'll sleep a full eight hours without any problems. So... The rest of the time, absolutely not hope in hell of of, uh, of relaxing in any shape or form. No. So if if you mean by during the day, I hate I hate beachside summer holidays. Absolutely hate them. Uh, love skiing, um, uh, you know, because it's an active holiday. Um, mm. And but and and what that does is that probably it relaxes me mentally and activates me physically. Um, and that that has an, that has a contribution to relaxation because it's away from actually if you if you're if you're a, 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 if you you kind of become a slave to the purpose and the systems and the processes in your lifetime algorithm. So actually, when you step off the algorithm and not do the algorithm, that's very relaxing. Mm. What, what what do you think about health? What does health mean to you? Yeah. So so I'm I'm it, it is an area that I have, I have divided into two um, intellectually. I believe there is a mental health and then there is a physical mm. health. Um, mm. I have been mm, acutely aware of my mental health um, mm. and I have no awareness of my physical health whatsoever. So, mm. so I'm, I'm, I'm the I, I am of the opinion that if the brain is active and alive and functioning, the rest of the body, which will, is going to decay whatever you do, um, it, it will, will hang on longer if the brain is active. I think once you start losing your brain functionality, then, then the rest of the because it's, because it's at the top of the whole neural system um, and everything in your body runs as a result of the neural system, the moment you lose control of the the, the, the the central computer, I think the rest of the body starts to decay. So I have to say, Tony, unlike you, I am I am not in the in the physical domain, but I don't look anywhere near as good as you. Um, so you know, that's okay. 
you're you're not helping your your mental health much by um, actively being engaged in football so much, are you? <laughs> I think that's rich coming from you. Given that my team was higher than your team this year, so <laughs> no, no, that's not that's not a dig at your particular team. But I mean, I just think for anyone in football, it's just oh, mentally, it's crazy. If you if you were to kind of analyse what football fans put themselves through on a regular basis. Yeah, actually, one of the, it, it, I, it's a really great question, but people often ask me, why, why, why football? Why do I, you know, and, and just for those people listening in, I've been a season ticket holder at, uh, at Chelsea Football Club for 38 years. Um, I've missed very few games, usually because of the uh, four weddings and a funeral, that kind of thing. But the, the, um, uh, I, my, my experience of football it is it is the only time where I, I genuinely experience um, unconditional emotion. I think mm. as a sport, it, you know, a goal can come from nowhere. Um, it, mm. the, the, the objective of the game is, you know, a lot, for me, rugby is quite predictable. You know, the team push forward, push forward, push forward, and then eventually get it over the line. Whereas with football, it can mm. a goal can come from literally any 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 quarter, any any player, any situation is very very dynamic, and I find the mm. spontaneous emotion of of celebrating a goal or now a VAR decision or you know actually it's not the same now actually funny enough it's very difficult to um, they they've changed the game without noticing it's been an unconditional uh, 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 um, uh, unintended consequence of introducing VAR which is actually the the pleasure sensor of a goal now has been removed. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, because you feel stupid. Um, so what, what happens is you, you celebrate a goal and then it goes to VAR and then it's, 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 it's cancelled off and you just feel stupid that you celebrated it because you realise mm-hmm. that you've been, you weren't watching the game properly because the technology has said you weren't mm-hmm. watching the game properly because it was somebody was, you know, one inch offside. Um, and I, I think there's an unintended consequence that they have. They are in the process of destroying the sport to a point where, in mm-hmm. the end, you can get robots to play it because you won't need humans to play it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, and that's that's a that's a downside of the money and, and sponsorship and all that sort of thing. I think people, I think they've got mm-hmm. that wrong. I think they should have mm-hmm. left some human uh, judgment in there and that and left it as part of the game because it was equal for everybody. Now it's. It's yeah. always created a new equality for everybody, but it's technically led is not. So I hate this. You celebrate a goal and then they go to VAR and then you wait for two or three minutes and then they say it's not one or it is one. And even if it is one, mm-hmm. <clears throat> all the players are kind of run back and they're kind of hanging around the set spot to take a kick. And, you know, it's just because they know it was a goal and it's just, it's all a bit flat now. So they've removed that. But for me, over the years, football has re- represented this. You're just sitting there, you're chatting with the thing, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, your your, your team has scored a goal. That is just that, that, that spontaneous emotion is something I do not experience in any other walk of life. To be honest, everything else has mm. a, a different type of build up to it. So, when you were talking about VAR, one one thing it made me think of about is mistakes and and that led me on to thinking about sort of failures i mean what, what do you think about and not obviously just related to football but in in life and in business what do you think about mistakes and failures and people's attitudes towards that well i i think if you uh if you're not failing you're not going fast enough um mm-hmm. and I, I think it's an absolute fundamental of of 
I'm just sounding a bit like a stock record of building a system and process that is designed to to create that you in building that system and process you must fail and it's an imperative mm. that you fail um, and mm. actually I think the mindset is you should wake up in the morning and think you're going to fail all day mm. uh, because what happens then is when you're successful it's that much more exhilarating um, rather than saying I'm mm. going to be successful today and then what you do is you find that to get there, you've got to fail a lot of time, and that just erodes your confidence, your emotion. So I, I have a completely different attitude, which is I go into work to fail hmm. with an objective of well, reaching my goal. Um, so right. you have to have a clear, stated goal. Don't, don't just go into work and fail and not have any goals because that's just, you know, you're just being. Hmm. But if you have a clear, stated goal, and that goal can be a financial one, it can be a, a, an emotional one, it can be a pro bono one, it can be whatever it is. As long as you're always mm. focused on the goal, if you're always, if you're, if, if you're, if you're aiming to get to Mars, as we are now as a, as a, as a humanity, you know, mm. as long as you always keep, we're going to Mars, we're going to Mars, we're going to Mars, you, you have to fail along the way, otherwise you're never going to get to Mars um, because you'll be mm. 10 miles away from Mars and there'll be a failure and you weren't expecting it and the whole thing ends. So I, I absolutely believe failure is a critical uh, yin to the yang of success. Uh, uh, and, mm. and I, I, again, you know, philosophically, I, you know, I think everything's about energy, and energy is neither lost nor gained in the universe. There's a kind of a, a, a finite amount of energy, but there is positive mm. and negative energy. And you have a choice of whether you're going mm. to um, use. Uh, you've got to recognise there's negative energy. You've got to, and you're, you're seeking positive energy. But you need the negative to define the positive. So actually, you need failure to define the success. I love that. Yeah. Um, so what? Why do you think? Well, two two questions. Why are people so afraid of failure? And how are? What's a good way for someone who is like that to to maybe try to change that? I think if if you enter into a system without purpose, without a goal, then failure you run the risk of failure being seen as a negative because it just means you're not competent, uh, you're you're no good at what you do, you haven't done the homework, you haven't become a subject matter expert you haven't you know and and you've done something and therefore you worry that the outside world looks at you as just being somebody who just does stupid things and therefore they they step away from you you know if you if you're with someone and they keep making mistakes you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna move away from them slightly because you're gonna think i don't want to be encumbered by their mistakes so i think there is inherent fear amongst people that if they are seen as failures that people won't want to know them, won't want to be friends with them. Yeah. Conversely, if you have a very clear vision, purpose, um, goal, and you share that with everybody around you, they they mm. support you when you fail because they know you're mm. actively trying to get to that place, and um, um, and. And so, therefore, they work with you and say, it's okay, don't worry, you know, you keep going. You, you, I can see the movement towards your goal, towards your purpose, towards your vision. Keep going, and they support you, and it completely reverses 
the polarity. And I think my observation of people who are in fear of 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 of, of failure um, is because they haven't created the support infrastructure around them, which is led by purpose and led by goal. And actually, often I see. Um, mindset affected by fear of success far more than fear of failure um insofar mm-hmm. as people say but if i get this right i'm going to be really good at it and then and then and then and they almost build failure into it because they're a bit they're a bit challenged by that um and i i, I might have even experienced a bit of that myself when i ran this this top 200 advertising agency you know i mm. I, I, I kept seeing I wasn't really good as a manager and I didn't really want to grow a big company and I didn't want to sell to WPP. And I, you know, I kept, I kept, these demons kept going in my mind. It was almost a fear of success thing. Um, mm-hmm. But having said that, you know, my, my life now is, is, is so much more enriched by not being a slave mm-hmm. to uh, landlords and councils and various other authorities. <laughs> Um, on the whole kind of failure thing, when I, mean, I know you mentor a huge number of people on a regular basis, what do you, would you say many of your mentees have a problem with, with failing? Or failing? Um, I, I think what, what seems to be consistent amongst nearly all of them is a sense of imposter syndrome, of doubt rather than failure. Um, hmm. in the sense that the thing that has always astonished me about about every human being I've I've ever met is they're always they've always got something that they're brilliant at, and hmm. for some reason, whether it's the education system, and I, I, I hold the education system uh, to blame for, for a lot of this, that 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 hmm. brilliance is 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 dulled by the education system um, where, where we're, all, we're all told to, to unify and, uh, and, 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 and flat, flat pack our, our qualifications and go on and if you don't do that you're, you're, you are a failure and, and many people's brilliance is, is dulled by that and I think what I, what I find my, where my mentoring works back best is to, is to find where that dull brilliance is and then just help polish it and once you start to polish mm. that and it starts to shine, then it feeds uh, confidence, it feeds energy, it feeds mindset. And so what I do with my mentors is I just, I just really push them into the place where there's a, a dull place and can say, you know, there's some brilliance there. You really ought to be making the most of that because if you don't, you are you – are, you are failing me, not you. You're failing me because I'm not getting your brilliance. And that, that mm. as a philosophy, seems to be working really well as a, as a mentoring philosophy. So in other words, I spend a lot of time listening, uh, seeing what they, where they feel stuck, why they're not doing what they're really good at, um, and then I just unblock all of those things and, and kind of start to polish up and shine their brilliance. Because you're you're a very experienced mentor, you know, working with so many people over, I don't know how long it is, but I know it's been quite a long time. How is it, would you say it's quite easy for you to see when someone's lying to themselves? Oh, I, I, um, 
Oh, that's, oh God, lying, that's such a weighted term, lying. I, uh, yes, it's very, very easy to see when um, they are they are up, up, applying imposter syndrome, fear of failure, um, a mm. mindset which is which is stopping them doing what they should be doing. Yes, and mm. you know you don't you don't want to talk personally, but often there's there is somebody else in the mix who's saying you know you're you're stop doing that you're not good enough um you know all mm-hmm. that sort of thing um so there are uh, often outside factors which i don't get into but you can kind of see that um mm-hmm. uh there is the, the the there's a kind of an investment strategy if you actually if you ever i mean i've done a lot of of uh M&A work, I've done a lot of investors raising money for companies and everything. And there's a kind of a similar process there. You Investing in yourself, you need to really identify what's really good about, about your bit and then, and then build confidence into that and then, and then tell the story in such a way that, that people go, actually, I'm going to help you with that story because that's a cool story. And often they mm. are surrounded by, 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 by people's naysayers who are saying, well, don't do that or and there might be some particular person or, or maybe something in the background something happened to them earlier on in their life or something like that. And, and it, it, it's, it can be quite profound, the impact of, of, a, of a life experience early on in their lives on their ability to do things. Mm. Lying. I don't think it's lying. I don't think it's lying. I think it's just, it's fear. I think you were right to touch on fear before, I think. Mm. Do you get a buzz from mentoring people when they, when they start to achieve what they were hoping for? No, not 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 in the same way as when when Chelsea score. No, um, buzz. buzz. I don't. I don't think I do. To be honest, I think. Um, I think it's you know again it's it's it's, it's what I do, Tony. So so and I've got mm. seemingly have got very good at it, and a lot of people are really appreciate appreciate. I I think I'm. I have a big. Um, pro bono altruistic part of me so I, I think maybe rather than being getting a buzz I think I probably feel very satisfied and I feel very mm. contented that I've done a good mm. job um, mm. I don't think it's I don't think it's a buzz as, in that way because I think I think the thing about buzz is it it's that feels addictive and then then what you might do is spend your time looking for the buzz rather than looking for mm-hmm. for contentment and just say actually I've done so yeah there are many times where I put the put the uh, uh, so what I ask my mentees to do is to send me a, a what they heard after a session and it I'm, I'm just when I read through that I think do you know what I've done a really good piece of work there that's good I hope I hope it has an impact mm-hmm. on their lives um, and, and mm-hmm. make make lives better I think mm-hmm. I know you've got quite a few causes that you sort of believe in quite strongly, and you do a lot of work for for, for different causes, don't you? I do, yes. So, so when I when I um, when I became youngest MD, one of the first uh, pieces of business that I was introduced on was the Children's Society, and I'd never worked on a on a charity mm. uh, client before, and I was introduced to the client, and uh, um, we we then re. re- Help rebrand the Children's Society as was then, not in their current format. They, it lasted something like uh, fourteen or fifteen years. The brand, which is very unusual in brand world, to, to last something, 
Um, and that kind of kicked off a, a immersing myself in a community of people who, who are brilliant at, 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 at uh, utilizing their, their, uh, their willingness to help others as well as money. Uh, whereas I've always been in the, in the business of money. So I was quite taken by that. So I'm now subsequently, you know, rebranded 14 charities and, and that whole pro and, and then, I, I I've come to realise I'm a very very privileged um, in what I've what I've been able to achieve, and therefore I'm in very much in give back mode. So yeah, so so currently I'm I'm, I'm close to raising money for to build a school in Uganda for for uh, primary children, um, and and I'm very actively involved in the Guild of Entrepreneurs as a freeman there, and supporting very young entrepreneurs who are entering into the business arena to help them not make the kind of mistakes that we all make as business people, but actually we shouldn't. Somebody should have told us, don't do that. Uh, you don't need to do that. I want, I want the next generation of business owners to make mistakes nobody's ever made before, i.e. go for the failure. Um, go for mm. fail in ways that nobody's ever failed before because that moves society on, it moves humanity on, it moves the planet on. Um, so... I, I'm very willing to teach anybody who asks um, all the things that I learned and were avoidable mistakes if somebody said, don't do that. Hmm. Samina, when you were just talking about that, and you know, a few minutes ago we were talking about failing and the education system and so on, and I know one thing that seems to be common with many people is that their children don't necessarily listen to them. They're more likely to listen to other people than to their own parents. So maybe think about your your daughters. How how are your daughters' thoughts about failure? Do they are they sort of really listen to you when it comes to that kind of stuff, or they are oh, no, don't listen to dad, they listen to other people? Uh, to be to be honest, I don't really have these kinds of conversations with my children. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the the thing that they they've picked up both from, from, from their mother and, and from me is if you work hard, the results follow. And I'm very proud to say that my, all three of my girls um, have worked really, really hard and, and have seen positive results as a result of working hard so they really have a, a strong work ethic so although although you know they want for nothing they mm-hmm. as far as i can see they they know that they have to kind of work for that and th- and that work yeah. involves both um being kind to people and physically doing work if you know what i mean and mm-hmm. so i'm very proud to look at them at that point, you know, one's, one's become a doctor, um, one's got a job in, uh, also finished university as well this year, and um, he's going into the property sector, uh, and the other one's at, at, at university as well. They've, they've done really well as a, as, as a, as a, a, a group of girls, and I'm, hmm. I'm really comfortable with the, the majority of the values that are important that I would want them to have, they have. Um, Failure isn't really because none of them have really talked about going into business or starting a business, so they don't need to understand failure. I think the failure is 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 where. But having said that, um, my my youngest daughter was very very good at uh, gymnastics, and 
you know, there is a, a, a cabinet full of medals and, and prizes from national, national events and things like that. Um, and there were times when, when they didn't win. It was rare, but there were times when they didn't win. And that, those kinds of failures, I think, are, 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 are important to understand. Um, uh, my, my eldest was a very good ballerina and, again, the same sort of thing. Uh, and you know, got good enough to go to the, the national uh, ballet uh, in, in, in uh, Covent Garden, but went and decided it wasn't for her. You know, um, and uh, you know, so so they deal with that. I think I don't know whether I think uh, uh, I don't. So we've never really talked about failure as such, mm. um, partly because, but yeah. they, we have talked about what what how you get success which is you just work and you do all the due diligence yeah. and you keep at it and all that sort of thing that I think they do, they do seem to have that well, we, we're running out of time before before we finish what are your thoughts on and I know you're active in so many different areas what are your thoughts on retiring and you know as you kind of get to those sort of later stages of life and so on so I, I I've done my best not to swear on, on this show um, but the, the R word is definitely a swear word. Um, right. um, uh, it, retirement, and there you go, I've sworn now, is, is a conspiracy. Right. Uh, it's a conspiracy that was, was, was set up by, by the manufacturing industry and the landowners and government. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it is a way. I I I, um, I worked on a on a brand called MPI um, National Provident Institute, which was based in Tunbridge Wells many years ago, and did some great commercials with with uh, squirrels and things like that for them. And I remember going to a meeting with them, and I said, you know, how does your business model work? How do you how do you how do you do this? And they said, well, it's very simple. We said we, people we work all our our metrics out on people retire at sixty five and die at sixty eight. And I said, okay, what, what you mean you expect people? Yeah, it said because, yes, because when, when you actually stop what you're about, it kills you. Mm. I yeah. said, okay. And then what, what's happened since then, because this is the, I'm talking, ooh, you know, 25 years ago. What's happened since then, of course, medicine and, and, and technology and all that sort of thing has meant that people now are not dying on average at 68. They're dying in their mm. 80s. And of course, that's completely yeah. blown the, the, the economics, um, so that we're all having to to work longer because you know you need more people in the workforce to pay for the people who aren't in the workforce, all that sort of thing. And it's, it was always a conspiracy to really sort of to 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 control society. So my view on that is you must you must create a life that you just love living, mm. and that can include. Uh, work it can include gardening it can include holidays it can include being uh, a family person a grandparent whatever all of those sorts of things so my view on this is that i i i will not use the word um i i sort of wrinkle a little when when the word pension is used but i realize that's actually how you fund the third part of your life, which is which is you know you're gonna you're, you start off as a young person, and you're you're a dependent, and then you go through the education, and then come out, and then you 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 generate the wealth that you you're going to generate 
financially and, and, and build goods and chattels around you. And then you get to a point where you then enjoy those goods and chattels for, for a, a lengthy period. And I think we should think about life in a much more holistic way of, you know, you're, you should be looking for quality of life. So don't do a job mm. you don't like. Why would you do that? Yeah. Um, don't, you know, um, you know, do something you, you love all of the time. And actually, that may involve being responsible to other people because you're selling them goods and services, or it may not. And, and so my, my view is that, and, and a lot of people who know me, I say, oh, yeah, when, 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 when I stop work, and people just look at me and they sort of stop and they just go, you, stop work. I just, I can't, I can't, I can't see it. And maybe that's, that's the truth. Um, mm. Or my pro bono work takes over entirely when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm not having to to you know bring the mortgage down and all that sort of thing, and that's all done and dusted, mm. which it should be done fairly soon. Um, and I don't actually have to generate that much income to 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 to, to live. Yeah, then I, I think maybe I, I go closer to the top of the Maslow hierarchy of needs than, than I am even at this time. So uh, one one, and you go into give back mode. I, I think mm. I think you want to wake up every morning and know you have a purpose or a goal or something like that, and then you will want to go to bed and wake up the following morning. And every time, the moment you remove that, which I, for a lot of people, they, you know, they get the gold clock. And then that's int- removed instantaneously on a Friday, on Monday, they wake up and they go, well, I've got, I've got nothing to do with my life anymore. My friends, mm-hmm. my thing, and, and it kills them. And so I, I, mm-hmm. I don't, that's not, that's not how I want, I want to uh, move on to the next, next phase of my energy. Um, I'd, I'd like to feel alive all of the time. So, so I don't use the word, I don't think about it, um, that the life will present itself as as and when it does. Yeah. Well, and, and and again, something you said just then has reminded me of something else that you I heard you talk about a year or so ago. The, the fourth sector, which I know you're from. What I can remember you're quite passionate about. And yes, most yes. people don't seem to know anything about it. Yeah. So 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 I I am very clear that. Business as a concept has to change, um, and where where business, as I alluded to earlier in the, in the industrial revolution, was all about making money for the few, um, when and for shareholders, the whole system is reliant on making money for the few. So using using the majority to make money for the few. I think we need to reverse the polarity on that and have. Mm the few making money for the majority. And so what I what I believe is that the generation that's coming through are the generation to take a hold of business and say, okay, we're going to create a business where 50% of our profit goes to social enterprise to go to improve the world, 50% of the profit. Not all of it. I, I, I'm not sure I'm in the, 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 the uh, all out, you know, the, the, the not-for-profit world. I think... That's too demanding. It needs a certain type of mindset. It, you know, I think you can still have a business that has a purpose to make money because by doing that, it's always looking for efficiencies and costs and you know, providing value to people. Um, mm. But but uh, and and it doesn't matter whether that's whether it's a, a, a Bitcoin currency or whether it's a, a, a 
you know, a physical coin in your hand, currency. I don't really care. They need some currency exchange because it enables us to value our contribution to society um, in, yeah. in a particular way. Uh, again, that, that's that's too wide and too unequal at the moment. I'd like to equalise that up as well a little bit, but I, I don't have a particular philosophy on that. But I think, you know, if, 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 if 90% of the wealth belongs to less than 1% of society, I think that's got to be wrong. Um, but I think businesses should have a clear uh, dual purpose, which is going to make profits for the people who are going to commit to and stay up and worry about staff and come up with big ideas and make investment and put the families on the line. I think they're entitled to a reward for that. But actually the function of business, the fourth sector is about enabling the new wave of business to come in and say, actually our stated purpose is we're going to spend 50% on these causes. And I don't care whether it's... It's, 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 and in fact, there was a um, brew dog. I think were on 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 the news yesterday or the day before, and they they are they are claiming now to be carbon negative, not carbon neutral, carbon negative. Mm. In other words, they are they built their business in such a way they're going to put carbon back into the ecosystem as a result of their business. Yeah. Now, mm. I think there's some arguments about this carbon offsetting and everything, but what they've done is they bought two thousand acres of. Of, of, of land in Scotland and they're going to plant a million trees and stuff like that. That I love the idea of that, that, that smart people who start businesses contribute a significant proportion of their, not, not 1% for, you know, 1% is nothing. Yeah. I want, I want mm. it to have a dual 50% goes to social enterprise, 50% goes to, to the shareholders. So the shareholders can mm. create their own personal wealth and be rewarded for the, the risk that they take from being business owners. But the, the mm. significant proportion, and that I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm both fascinated by that, passionate about it. If we can make that work, I think it can make a real difference to to the planet as a whole, which is going to get a tough, it's going to be a tough place to live in very soon because we're going to have messed it up with, uh, with uh, there's going to be more plastic gloves and, and visors floating around in the seas than anything else. So, um, mm. Um, there's going to be, you know, we, we've got a big methane problem. It's not necessarily just a carbon dioxide problem, um, you know. So th- th- there are lots of things going on that, that s- science is sort of either keeping from us or not giving us information. We, we, you know, the, we're accelerating the melting of, 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 of the ice and things like that. So mm. clearly, the climate's going to change, um, and mm. we need businesses to be actively. Enabling us all to have great quality of life, but at the same time making sure that we're not we're not completely destroying the planet with not. Barnaby, if people want to find out more about you and get in touch with you, where where would they go to? Um, well, they should contact you, Tony. No, um, the, so <laughs> you're welcome to visit my uh, my website uh, www.barnabywinter.com. Uh, clearly. I'm always happy to have LinkedIn connections. Uh, um, so look me up, Barnaby Winter, with a Y, just to be more comprehensive. Barnaby Winter, W-Y-N-T-E-R. So you can look me up. I'm on LinkedIn. It's another great way of communicating with me. Um, if you type me into Google, you should find some bits and pieces about me. Um, there seems to be quite a lot there. So And just please make contact, you know, and, and I'm, I'm more than willing to, to explore... Uh, any of the ideas that maybe we've touched on in this, in this podcast um, and, and see where it goes. 
Well, and just before before we finish, have you got? Is there a book you can think of that you would recommend people to read for whatever reason, whether it be about life or business or, or whatever? One of my favourite books is uh, a book called uh, Lessons from the Mouse, and it's the guide for applying Disney's World Secrets of Success to your organisation, your career, and your life. Um, mm. I know we haven't talked about it, but I'm a massive Disney fan. Uh, I have to go every two years to a, a Disney park somewhere in the world. Uh, have done for the last 30 years. It's just such a great expression of, of a good part of life. Um, but it's by Dennis Snow. Lessons from the house. Obviously, I'm attracted to it because I'm Barnaby Winter and it's by Dennis Snow. But, uh, um, and it's all about... Uh, Disney's World Secret Success. He worked there for many years and he's written a lovely little book and each chapter is quite provoking in terms of how you can apply success to your organisation, your career and your life. Well, Barnaby, thank you for your time and it's um, it's flown by. I really appreciate all the, the wisdom and the little nuggets you've given to the listeners over the last hour and so. so you know what, yeah, thank I've, you. I've really enjoyed being your the first guest and uh, if ever inclined I'd love to do it again fantastic thank you Barnaby thank you next week episode 3 of Happy Versus Flourishing with Steve Sims and do you know anyone that's worked with Sir Elton John or Elon Musk or anyone who's sent people down to see the wreck of the Titanic on a seabed Or maybe anyone who's closed museums in Florence for a private dinner party and then had Andrea Bocelli serenade them while they ate their pasta. Well, we're going to hear more about this and a lot more. Steve Sims is quite a colourful character and he is our guest on next week's show. Hope you've enjoyed this week's episode with Barnaby Winter. Please do share the episode with anyone who maybe needs a bit of help with marketing or would probably benefit from some of the uh, interesting concepts that Barnaby was talking about. Do leave a review for us and please subscribe as well and hope you have a great week.